Hello and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. My name is Alex Williams and today I'm joined by my friend Aaron Mitchell. Aaron's a passionate guy and he has a lot of thoughts about a lot of different things and we're going to dive into it in the longest episode of My Wax Museum ever. I promise it's worth it. Uh, Aaron has some interesting thoughts that he shares on his studies in philosophy and literature after today's show or even before. Take some time to listen intently to the people around you. Aaron Mitchell, welcome to My Wax Museum. Thank you for having me, Alex Williams. <laughs> I'm very ex- I'm excited to have you because uh, I've known you for years, um, and but like we've we've like hung out a few times because I think we have like similar hobbies and stuff. Yeah, but we've never just like sat down and chatted. Yeah, I think we've had some like good conversations. Yeah, but like I don't think we've really had like a let's sit down and talk kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah. which doesn't really happen with anybody I know. No, I mean that's but the like, nice thing about having a podcast. Yeah, it just is I get to be like gives you a specific yeah, reason and time in, instead of being like, "Hey, Aaron, come in this room and sit down with me for an hour and like <laughs> yeah. tell me about your life." I got, I got homework and yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I appreciate you being here. It's it's great. Um, but why don't I kind of want to get back to what we were talking about before we started, like officially the okay. podcast. Okay. But first. Um, I always start off the show asking how we know each other. And if you have like an initial memory of me. An initial memory. This is funny. Like the first thing I think of has nothing to do with you at all. Really? Yeah. Because I remember moving to Calgary, Alberta. Because that's where, you know, we met and stuff. And I'm assuming we've talked about that in your previous podcast with others. But uh, yeah, I moved here when I was 15. So like a while ago. And... I went to the the seminary building for our church. I don't. What kind of like listenership do you have, by the way? Like, I'm there... I'm glad you ask. Uh, yeah. Not everybody is members of the church. Most of the people who listen to this will be people who already know you, though. Okay. Um, that's kind of the listenership like varies a lot depending who I have on the show. Oh, I um, see. <laughs> so <laughs> well, it's I'm like sure you'll have a dip it's, in it's, listenership. It's after interesting this. to see because I'm like. <laughs> Oh, they didn't share it with their family. Nobody knows who they are, like, yeah. or they just don't know people who care to listen to podcasts. You'll probably get like ten hits from me. After I this one. <laughs> I get like I get at least thirty per episode. Is usually kind of what it ends That's up being. That's pretty good. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's very satisfying. It's kind of yeah. weird, but yeah. it's like it's kind of nice, I guess. Yeah, you're like, oh, thirty people want to hear what people I know have to say. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not. It's they're not here for me. They're just like Alex knows interesting people interesting um so uh so sorry you were you were saying back so so i don't know if you want me to like explain kind of the setup or anything i mean yeah like explain like what a seminary building is yeah so um you know church of jesus christ latter-day saints we're both members yeah you and i alex and uh (laughs) i am Yes. What? Well, I, I believe so, unless things have changed, which is totally okay. <laughs> I, but, I uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so when you are in high school or grades 9 to, to 12, you attend something called seminary. Right. It usually happens early in the morning for people, and uh, that's miserable because you have to wake up and go to a class at like 6.30 a.m. or something mm-hmm. ridiculous like that, yeah. which is what I used to do in Ontario, where I was from. Anyways, so I move to Alberta, which is kind of like the Utah of Canada when mm-hmm. it comes to Mormons. Yeah, the the church population. And so they have 
you know, more funds and stuff to work with. And because there's more member students at some high schools, they have seminary buildings that are off campus, so to speak, that you go to during a, a spare, you know, class mm-hmm. that you, you're not taking. So I would go there and hang out to meet friends because I was shy and I didn't want to be a loser. <laughs> so this was a safe place where I could go and meet friends. And again, this has nothing to do with you, but for some reason I think of this when I think of like how we met. But I, I go into this this seminary building and our mutual friend Jonathan Meerhead is there yeah. with one of his friends. And uh, also Brad Kruger, another mutual friend of ours, was there. He was kind yeah. of a funny goofball guy. And I just remember like talking to these people and like becoming friends. And then uh, at one point or another, you just entered the picture with all those people. <laughs> well, because that's so funny. You're like, I was friends with these people. And then at some point, at some Alex point was entered. also there. I think I was friends with your sister beforehand. Yeah, I think I think you yeah. were because so, she was a grade older. Yeah, than she was you. a grade above And she me. went to the same high school as you. I went to a different high school. Correct. And I was a grade younger. Mm-hmm. So it kind of... I just yeah. kind of wound up slipping in there. I also just like stole all of Jerrica's friends. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's like I remember, what I did. I remember you being like the like a you know really energetic, funny guy. You know, you always had something that you wanted to say loudly to make people laugh, and I enjoyed that. <laughs> I'm I glad you enjoyed it because I know some people who didn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. But uh, sorry, the way I said that was <laughs> really rude. You're but... like, which I enjoyed thirty <laughs> percent of the time. But I re- like I really understand why people wouldn't know just kidding but uh i also remember now this i think this is more a function of being friends with jerica your sister but i don't know if i'm allowed to say that oh yeah she's been on the show okay cool well hello jerica if you listen to this hello all my friends who i don't often talk to (laughs) and that might be listening to this right now hello and i still appreciate you being in my life to some degree (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh yeah i remember going to your family's basement quite often yes yeah and playing a dancing game on the connect yeah xbox connect and i loved yeah, yeah. that so much like that was the highlight of my week oh i remember happened. i remember that game yeah yeah and i i got good because i wanted to be the best <laughs> i think you funny. spent the most time on it you spent more time on it definitely than anybody in our family the <laughs> only time that game came out was when jerica had friends over Nice. Yeah, we literally never played it any other time. It <laughs> makes me kind of kind of sad, but also proud of myself. You know, <laughs> You're guy. like, I was there. Yeah. 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 So that's how we know each other. Yeah. yeah. And then we, we also, you know, got into video stuff a bit because we both kind of got interested yeah. at the same time and yeah, different and it, paths. But So, I, I mean, okay, tell, tell me how, how you got into videography and film. Yeah. Well, I mean, like me and, me and Tyler Jensen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's been he's on. also been on. I think he was like my second guest. Well, hello, Tyler. Well, him and I like we became really good friends, um, kind of in high school, which is funny because he was like a few years younger than me. Yeah. But we would play Call of Duty Black Ops Two Zombies till yeah. like two in the morning on weeknights. Like and we would just spend so much time together. But we we always loved to be the funny guys, or at least I did. I don't right. know if that's what Tyler loved, but. We were entering, entering like chili cook-offs and making T-shirts for yeah. that and like winning them and such. But uh, for young men's and young men's, well, it's like a that's uh, like an organization uh, for youth within our within church, the church. Yeah, that uh, you know puts on activities. But one of these activities was uh, we had to make a, a video and we we're going to mm-hmm. show it the next week. And so me and Tyler just went like you know over nine thousand with this thing. 
and just try to make it as funny as possible. And we ended up just recording us watching YouTube videos in the end, which really? was kind of funny. Yeah, but I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. And then we kind of like thought we were funny, which is debatable probably for some. I thought we were funny, and yeah. so we decided to make like a second version of that. And I think after that, we're like, hey, you know, YouTube's kind of becoming a big thing. Like, it would be fun to do skits and see if we could get, like, rich and famous from this. And Yeah. And we started doing that. And then we had, like, some different opinions on stuff, and we kind of went different directions with the videography. But you yeah. were you were involved with that, and Spencer Muirhead, too. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And definitely Spencer more than, than I. Archibald. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, like, showed up for a couple... A couple little videos yeah and uh they were funny and they still uh, they like they still get played i still <laughs> know people who reference them people come up to me um there and the, they say oh yeah like that delivery one that was really funny they liked that eh? they yeah I'm people glad. loved the delivery one. i feel like we tried on that one we yeah. really i mean yeah. we spent that whole day we did yeah like working on that brown, right brown yeah, yeah yeah brandon was great too <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't just like throw people's full names on this, but I guess you you have the power of editing in your hands. I I can edit it, and I don't think anybody. You're not gonna hunt Brandon down and try and assassinate him. Well, I hope not. <laughs> uh, uh, so that's <laughs> okay. So, so you're uh, you're you're into film. I want to know um, if it's not too much of like a like an edgy story. Ooh. What's like. What's the like? What's the creative difference between you and Tyler Jensen? Oh, like what? That's interesting because I thought about it. Because we're still like we're still good friends. You're like, still yeah yeah. Like and one thing that I should say is like I think me and Tyler are both this kind of way, but we're really transient with the people we spend our time with. Oh totally. Which yeah. like to me sometimes results in loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but usually I have like a couple of friends that are really solid. I spend a lot of time with. Right. And so like me and Tyler were super solid friends for a while. You know we were kind of bromance guys for mm-hmm. for a while. And then like once I graduated, he graduated. You know we just kind of had different interests. Mm-hmm. But I think the creative difference. <laughs> I mean, there's specific moments I can remember there being like a little bit of like. You know, just like a tiny bit of tension, and like I, I was hot headed, so it's probably mostly me. You know, because I was like, my ideas are right, but uh, you know, I was a young man, still sort of am. But, but um, yeah, I think I think one of the biggest differences at that point was just like, I think it was just like a, I don't want to say like a power struggle because I don't know if there was much power to go around in that situation, anyways. Right. But I think we both really liked our ideas for like right. where, sh- where things should go with you know which is funny to think about because we were just making like useless little videos yeah you know which i still enjoy they're not completely useless no videos, no but uh yeah i think like i would want something to be one way and tyler would think it would be best to go another way and then we just wouldn't be able to reconcile that and we would just i think yeah we just stopped trying to make stuff together because it was it was a bit of a bone of contention between us i think but yeah, I don't know if you want to keep that in no, or not. But. N- no, I, I mean, I have, I if as long as you are fine saying it. Yeah, like um, I think, I think, like like I said, me and Tyler are still pretty good friends, and uh, right, it's just yeah. you kind of wanted two different things. Yeah, I think we right, both wanted right. to be the director, right? Right, and so that which can't. doesn't work great. Yeah, having two. I mean, the the Avengers movies are really good. 
example yeah, of that. Yeah, no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but that's like a, scratch that out. It's <laughs> a different Don't circuit. put that in. <laughs> um, so, okay, uh, then then tell me, like, because um, you've, you've made uh, other, like, films other yeah. than just, like, yeah. these little comedy sketches, right? Mm-hmm. I know Funky Cops is a huge hit. <laughs> I made long comedy sketches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, like, have like a kind of story to them you know like mm-hmm. there's something going on more narrative yeah. yeah and so uh so tell tell me a little bit about that i guess era of your filmmaking of that narrative comedy uh short film yeah so so me and tyler made the videos and things started you know we were, we were having fun honestly i can't think of a like a particular moment where i was like you know what like i want to make a career out of this mm-hmm. but i think it was definitely after or during Funky Cops, yeah, and it's uh for anyone listening, that's the fun or sorry, <laughs> that's Funky Cops, the Suburban Heat yeah. on YouTube. So you can look that up, and if you put Aaron M A A R O N M after that, it will probably show up. But yeah, uh, yeah, I recommend it. It's a it's an entertaining watch to be sure, and you can watch me embarrass myself. It is really good. Yeah. I have a cameo in it. See if yeah, you can spot it's me. A cameo and also Spencer and yeah and. Uh, my bromance friend right now. Well, maybe, yeah. Let's scratch that bromance out because I don't know if you like that. But. <laughs> but yeah, and also my friend Harrison as well, who's kind of my best bro right now. Yeah. And we're kind of on this creative journey together. Yeah. To some degree. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there was like a particular moment where I was like, I want to keep going with this narrative thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe I'm veering from your question here. But no, no. I uh, I mean. I mean um... I guess, I guess more specifically, um, what was it like making those? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was definitely a learning experience because yeah. Funky Cops we made because we are now in YSA, like me and Spencer-ish, right? Like he came to the screening of it. And YSA, for anyone who's listening, you might not be familiar with, you know, Mormon culture, nomenclature. Well, there's a lot of culture and clatter going there, but... Uh, that's young single adults, and so where there's large groups of, of members, they'll often um, have congregations that are made up of young single adults mm-hmm. so that they can kind of get to know each other and hopefully not be so lonely and maybe even get married. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and it's good to have people your same age supporting you and your, your beliefs and life endeavors. But, um, yeah, so they, they had a yearly activity where they would have a film festival, quote unquote film festival. And it was usually just people making silly little videos. Yeah, there there are usually like a couple decent ones every yeah. year. And then all the rest, it's like, what? Yeah, exactly. Like, Why do you share that with us? <laughs> and so this year, I, I had decided, like, me and Spencer were like, we're going to make the best movie that has ever been seen at the film festival. And we just wanted to, like, go over 9,000 with it, right? Which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, and so we were just like, well, what can we make it about? And at that time, I was, I was like really into funk and disco, which I still am. And uh, I was like, why don't we make it a, like we should incorporate funk somehow. And I was like, funky 70s cops. Like, you can't go wrong with that. You know, we could just make it funny and stupid. And so uh, Spencer was like, yeah, let's do it. And then we're like, Spencer wanted to be the chief. Like right from the beginning, he's like, I want to be chief, you know, like that was, he just wanted to be that character. And so yeah. like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And um, 
And then we're like, okay, well, let's, we need, like, another guy, like, a partner. Because we kind of had an idea of the story, you know. Not really any story at all at that point. But uh, we're like, well, who else can do this? And I didn't know Harrison very well at the time, like, at all. But yeah. he was at church, and I'd see him. And he would he would do, like, finger guns and, like, point at people <laughs> and do this little dance just to make people laugh. Because his life is just a deadpan troll. Yeah. Right? And, uh, <laughs> and I was like hey, like, Harrison's pretty funky. Like, why don't we get him in on this, right? And so we weren't friends at that point. And that's, like, Funky Caps forged our friendship. That's where it began. Yeah. And so the process of making it, which is the question you asked, like, what it was like. Um, We literally just grabbed a camera and thought of, like, a few funny scenes and put them on a Word document and just, like, went out and tried to capture it. And so it was was all pretty, like, on the fly. But uh, it came together pretty well. And yeah. even looking back on it now, not to, you know, toot my own horn or anything or tinkle my own bell, <laughs> so to speak, I, uh, I'm i impressed with, like, the natural understanding of narrative that we had. Like, yeah. Like, there was, there's a beginning, you know, with, like, a, a conflict that arises and, you know, like, suddenly Bronson's not the funkiest anymore right. and so he has to overcome that. But then, you know, he has this character arc where he realizes, you know, that, like, justice is more important than being funky, <laughs> which he, which is hilarious because it's like a children's movie because he literally just says that, right? Like, he goes to <laughs> yeah. Chief after his I, arc's completed. And he's like, I love justice more than fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Trump, or not Trump, what the heck? Why did I say that? <laughs> and then Chief just gives him his badge back, which is, like, that's one of the funniest parts to me, aside from him eating the donut for, like, two minutes straight. It's so good. Because <laughs> he's like, he goes in, and he's like, I have something to say, Chief. And Chief, you know, well, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, he's like, let me finish this donut. And, like, for two minutes, he just eats this donut. And he's like, what is it you wanted to say? I was like, where's, where's Funky Harry? I love justice more than funk. And then he's, like, so glib. He's like, oh, yeah, you got kidnapped. He's like, and by the <laughs> way, if you love justice, here's your badge back. That's all I needed to hear, which is so funny. But uh, yeah, Oh, that show's a classic. Like, really, really. I've shown it to so many people. And uh, <laughs> it's qu- it's quoted all the time in my apartment. I love that. I was telling Harrison about that the other yeah. night, about how your roommates quote it and how, like, the thing with Chief and Spencer and people liking him and stuff and he just laughed yeah. he's just so glad yeah. that it was a <laughs> a guest uh, just walked into the room and left <laughs> and then left because the door is slightly ajar oh. but that's fine oh but uh what was i saying oh yeah i was talking to harrison about that and he was really he was really happy he just laughed and he's like i love that it's iconic to just random people even if they're just random bros in idaho <laughs> you know like he was just happy about that but yeah, it feels good when you, like, create something yeah. that, like, moves outside of your immediate sphere. Yeah. You know, like somebody other than your mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. Which is interesting. This might be a topic. But, like, I really dislike receiving praise from my family specifically. Really? I really, really dislike that. And it's a character flaw of mine. And I think, like, it's a bit of a separation between me and my fam jam. But, uh yeah. Is is that because it's like, well, of course you'd say that you're my brother kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's some of that. But also I feel like I have a little bit of like ugly duckling syndrome because <laughs> really? I, I feel like I'm the black sheep of the family. And that's just in my head, right? Like, yeah. Like yeah. me and my brother are very similar sometimes in the way we think and act. But uh, 
yeah, I always just feel like whatever's going on in my head, no one else can understand. Right. So I feel like that kind of, and I, I don't mean it, that in like a prideful sense. I think I just. Right. But you feel, yeah. you feel isolated. Yeah. A right? little bit. And so when, when my family's like, oh, wow, like we really liked that thing you put your heart and soul into. I'm like, oh, like, yeah, whatever. Like, don't tell me, you know, <laughs> really super stupid. But I, I'm, I'm trying to get over it. I'm trying to get better. Because, like, usually I won't show my family what I'm working on or talk to them about it at all. Really? Because I just I just don't want that, right? you know, thing that's not even there hanging over my head. Right. But right. Uh, lately I'm like, yeah, take a look. This is what I'm working on. You kind of, like, And they get excited for me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm happy that they're excited. But yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's, that's interesting. Because I, I feel like I'm the opposite. I'm like family listen to me like pay attention pay attention <laughs> yeah. i lecture to my family a lot like really? i'll talk politics and like art and like criticism to them for for days which they they'll listen to me for like five minutes but <laughs> be like but, okay uh, yeah my dad in particular like if i'm talking about something he likes or talking about something in a positive way like he'll right. listen right but uh yeah because I, I mean you're you're studying philosophy yeah, and, and English literature. And English literature. So I'm being trained in that, like, critical thought, right? So right, right. And I, I love it. I love that stuff. So so tell me about this. Um, maybe take uh, grade 12, Aaron, like, just graduated <laughs> high school, Aaron, okay? Um, and, and like, give, like what what's changed and obviously a lot has changed right like a lot has changed you have a beard you don't wear those striped shirts every single day (laughs) oh yes i loved that so much i'm such an imbecile (laughs) anyways (laughs) and uh and then uh so but like as far as your uh your ability to critique judge and to to read and appreciate like art um like what's what's changed what's different in you yeah oh everything everything when i was in high school and i had just graduated i was like i'm gonna be like a high-powered surgeon or a dentist really i was like those are like yeah that was my that was where i was going before that i wanted to be an astrophysicist because i loved mathematics i loved physics so much yeah but uh i looked it up and i was like oh you just sit in one room for your entire life hoping that you you get something interesting to tell the public. And I was like, yeah. that doesn't sound cool to me anymore, which is funny because that's what I'm going to be doing with books if I get that PhD, right. which I'm totally okay with because I'd, I'd prefer the teaching experience, right? Right. But, um, yeah, no, I wanted to be a dentist or a, or a surgeon, and that mm. was just, like, what I had in mind, and that was the goal. And uh, I hated English. I absolutely hated English. Really? Like, I enjoyed some books, right? Um, like the Hobbit was the first book I really read, you know, aside from Franklin and stuff like that. Right. And, you know, I loved that and Lord of the Rings and, and, um, yeah, but, um, I never, I never liked English class because I felt like people were just trying to throw stupid abstract ideas at me that they thought I should agree with, you know, I never knew how to write an essay, but when I look back on the work I did, it's because I would just point to things that were happening in the book. So my reading comprehension was second to none, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But my critical thought of being able to say, okay, well, this is in a text, but what does that say about its larger themes or what does that reveal about society? Like I never made that connection in high school, so I just hated English. But uh, what happened after that was, and I left high school with like, with unfounded confidence, right? Like I was just so 
confident and I thought I was funny. And even though I was a loser and a lot, a lot of people thought I was cool, like I kind of took pride in that. Right. Being, like the outcast and the punk. And uh, yeah, that happened. And, and at that point in time, like the missionary thing was much more iconic than it is now in the culture, right? Right. And right. That, that's a very culturally based thing. It's not not doctrinally based yeah yeah and to to kind of fill in the listeners aaron's like so a lot of people are familiar with mormon missionaries yeah and how uh they'll show up at your door you know two by two and knock on your door and invite you to come unto jesus and uh and then there is like uh a, a generally historically there's been a heavy pressure Mm-hmm. on young men especially yeah. and now young women a bit more too yeah to some uh, degree to go on missions um and uh and yeah so that's kind of the background yeah and that was always a cultural thing like yeah. i think it was definitely um you know our church leaders um talk about it as a responsibility and so it's borderline a commandment for you know able young men to go and do that but um you know, over time that's changed. And so at that point in time, you know, that's what I was going to do. You know, I was, I was working towards that, but, you know, due to things in my life <laughs> at that point in time, you know, I wasn't quite ready to go. And so I, you know, was working towards that. And then when I was, I think 19, just newly 19, I got like sidelined with like really bad anxiety, like really? super bad anxiety. Yeah. So I, I was working, I got a job at, was that Lee Valley? No, 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 Tag Davidson Drywall Supply. A little hmm. plug for them. They sell the drywall and they'll put it in your basement. And then it will be funny to watch them because they're all characters. But yeah, that's totally not relevant to the story. But yeah, I had a job, full-time job I was working and then I just got really bad anxiety. Hmm. And ever since I was a kid, I'd always worry a lot, you know, which I thought was normal. You know, you're like... I think most kids, when their parents leave on a date and they're far away and you can't contact them, you're like, they're going to die in a car crash. Right, right. Some people have that. And I I was that kid, but I was also really worried about health, my own health in particular. And I'd always have little mini panic attacks when I was a kid, recognizing them now. But at the time, I thought, you know, it was just something wrong with my health. So I always got tests and stuff, which which is... (laughs) Which is a plug for the Canadian healthcare system because yeah. I was listening to CBC Radio recently. So I'm going on all these tangents. No, that's fine. But, but uh, they, this is a really funny show. I think it's called Because News. And I recommend anyone to listen to it because they just bring up news, um, you know, articles and things and pieces. And then they'll have little trivia games. But the three people are comedians that are playing this game. And so they're not really trying to win, they're just making jokes. And uh, they were talking about the Canadian healthcare system because of COVID-19 and everything. And um, they're like, oh, is like, is Canada like a haven for the sick because we don't have to pay for our healthcare? And this lady's like, oh, she's like, I have a friend who like goes to the doctors every week because she's just so worried about her health like all the time. Yeah. And, you know, the doctors are always like, no, you're completely fine. She never has to pay. And she's like, she's like. Canada's not a haven for the sick. It's a haven for the hypochondriacs. <laughs> and I laughed because I was like, that's totally me. Like, right. I don't know how many times I've gone. And, you know, and it was kind of funny to hear that. But, uh, yeah, so coming back to, to the story. So, yeah, you know, I left high school wanting to be a surgeon doctor. And then I had a job and I was working on going on a mission and being able to do that. And then, yeah, super bad anxiety for like about a year. Like, um, 
it was more like six months was the peak of it where I had like panic attacks. I really just couldn't do anything. Like hmm. I'd just be in the corner of my room, like shaking kind of thing. And, really? Yeah. And like <laughs> it would affect my vision. Like that's how intense it got for me. Really? Like I would feel like I was going blind and I couldn't see anything. And yeah, I ended up getting counseling and, um, which I recommend to anybody, even if you don't have a mental health problem. Yeah. It's just really good to go and get, like if you're going to get a medical check up every year you might as well get a mental one too because they're so absolutely so linked together but yeah so I, I got really bad anxiety and so the mission thing was just the furthest thing from my mind and you know I would consult with my leaders about it and they'd be like yeah like you need to figure that out because we're not going to send you out on a mission with a mental health crisis right right and so uh yeah so that kind of got put on the back burner and then I worked for three more years at uh, Lee Valley Tools that my good friend John, John Gill Lee, mm. who um, I love so much. <laughs> He's one of my best bros. But uh, yeah, I worked for three more years. And in that time, I, I got some work experience and realized that like the, the careers I had in mind just weren't going to work for me because I was working in the same place every day, doing the same tasks, seeing a lot of people and interacting and like, quote unquote, helping them with their needs, you know, in a retail right. environment. And I just realized, like, I would hate the idea of working in the same place for a long period of time and just, like, seeing patients, right? Right. That kind of thing, which is what I would be doing if I was a surgeon or a, or a dentist. And I was like, I can't do <laughs> that kind of work. Hmm. And I realized, you know, like, the things I liked about manual labor and delivering drywall was that there was motion to it, right? Right. Like you would go to different places and so you'd see a bunch of the city so you weren't just in the same warehouse all day, every day, in the same hospital. And, and with uh, with the way the work was, you would have like a rough schedule. Like you'd start at seven, you'd go to whenever. But when the work was done, it was done and it was all. Right. So I recognized that as being like project-based work. And so I was like, I need something where I can move around a bit, you know, have a little bit of transience and if that's the right word, I don't know. And then it's project-based, you know, so I'm working right. on something. I complete that and I move on to the next task because that's how I like to break down my work rather than, okay, I need to, you know, take money for people for eight hours and then I'm done. <laughs> you know right. I mean? But, uh, yeah, so I realized, like, what I needed was something that moved around at least a bit and was project-based. And I knew right. that I couldn't be a dentist or a surgeon, which is – Kind of a good thing to find out in those four years between high school and university, the one year working at the drywall place and three years working at Lee Valley, the mm. retail space. And then I realized um, that I loved the critical aspect of of books and, and movies mm. in particular because within that time I realized, well, the film industry is all – it's project-based work yeah. and you move around, right? You get to see stuff and work with people, even if it's just between studios. Right. And uh, I was like, I would love to get involved in that. So I uh, – sorry, is there like a time no. limit you have? No, no, no. Okay, keep, okay. keep going. <laughs> I don't want to waste all my time on something. But, uh, yeah, so I was like, the film industry would be sick for that. And, um, you know, and I started critically analyzing films to some degree with, you know, my caveman brain I had at that point. Right. And uh, – and then I also finished a book that I received when I was <clears throat> like nine years old. Hmm. I received a book from my Uncle Jim and my Aunt Marlene, I think it is. I always get, there's two great aunts and uncles, two oh, sets of okay, them that so I always confuse. Oh, okay, so it's great aunts and uncles. 
Yeah. Okay. But uh, they're like some of my favorite people. But yeah. I I received a book from them called, and it's a classic, so hopefully y'all have heard of it. I don't usually say y'all, but I say it ironically, just so you know what kind of person I am, <laughs> if you're listening to this. But uh, yeah, you all should know about this, but it's an American literature classic. It's called Uncle Tom's Cabin. I I actually, I'm starting to read that in, oh. like, it, I, it's the next book on it, my list. It's amazing it's phenomenal it's written by harriet beecher stowe mm-hmm. who's a woman and so written in like the 19th century i believe mm-hmm. like mid to early 19th century yeah maybe even late by harriet beecher stowe and it's a slave narrative and it follows um a couple characters and how you know they experience the slave trade and uh oh, sorry there's just so many like critical things i could talk about yeah but i'll i'll resist going into that but i finished that book while i was you know having this kind of you know moment between high school and university and not going on a mission and not being able to go and and uh I read that book and it just it just hit me so hard really yeah like it like I got to the end of the book and I was crying like I was bawling my eyes out because it's so impactful and like the power of that story just like hit me so hard and I realized that you know Oh, sorry, there's so many things I'm saying in like a fractured way, but but movies have always been that way for me too. Like if you know, because that was something that was more accessible to me than books, because right. you know, I wasn't a, a bookworm like my sister. But um, I would I remember sitting in theaters and like before the movie would start, I would just get like so intense and I would just get so nervous because like what am I about to see, you know? And I would just get this like extreme excitement i would just sit there and like grip my chair and i'd have to like grab my parents hands because i was so like you know anxious i guess it was probably some of that anxiety but uh yeah and then movies were just like these fantastic events and watching the climax of like some really good movies as a kid just like how they would impact me emotionally you know it was like huge like beauty and the beast is one that like I remember all the time. Really? It's funny because I would never tell my family that because I'd always be so scared they'd make fun of me, you know, toxic masculinity and all that. But it's, uh, yeah, and I was like, man, the end of that movie is strong. That and Lion King, you know, like there's just moments in that movie that just, you know, hit me hard. Like, you know, Mufasa's death. And then at the end when, you know, Simba comes back and saves the day and like realizes his potential. And just the way the plot weaves. And I just remember as a kid, like, movies being so impactful and i think one of the movies that is kind of obscure that impacted me the most emotionally like had that emotional impact was actually mr megorium's wonder emporium really yeah which like even now it will like bring a tear to my eye then braveheart funny enough yeah (laughs) but uh anyways back to uncle tom's cabin yeah so i finished uncle tom's cabin and at that point i was already thinking about getting into you know trying to get into film Mm mm-hmm and I was like, wow, this hit me so hard. And that's kind of like what movies do. And I was like, they both tell stories, you know, so there's got to be something about narrative stories that these two forms have in common. And so I was like, you know, I, I want to study that. I was like, I want to know what these basic story things are that people build, you know, these different creative experiences out of. So I was like, I'm going to study English literature. Mm-hmm. And Harrison's dad is uh he's a professor of art history and architecture i Mm -hmm. believe and seeing the life he leads and stuff and the way he goes about it i was like i could dig that lifestyle because he's a cool guy yeah super cool guy and so i was like i like that and i i respect intelligence too and i've always had kind of a 
an affinity to enjoy, you know, expertise. Right. And so I was like, I want to be a literary expert. You know, I want to, I want to pursue that. And so the initial idea was, this is what I'll do so that my parents don't freak out because I want to get into film. <laughs> right. You know, because I'm not going to drop everything and go and do that because that's something I considered. Um, and so I was like, the way I'll get into knowing how to make a good movie is by studying literature. Hmm. And uh, that worked wonders, by the way. Like, and I'm still learning so much. And so I go to university, study English literature. And and uh, so it's, I don't know if that gives you kind of a good idea yeah. of the path I took. So I exited high school wanting to be a, a dentist or a surgeon. And I was going to go on a mission as soon as I could. But then, you know, anxiety struck and it kind of never left. It's still a little bit here, here and there, but I have control over it. And, you know, kind of shook my life up. And then in the time it took me to kind of settle down, which was like kind of, that was a year and a half and then three years passed and the mission just never happened which um you know i want to say like if i if i had been of good mental health and you know more in control of my life like i would have liked to go um Mm -hmm. but i don't regret it don't regret not being able to go because i've looked at it as um you know the lord has a purpose for me wherever i stand and i will fulfill that purpose the best i can wherever i am and the, the opportunities, the service opportunities and, and the opportunities of friendship and relationships I've had have caused me to never regret that. Right. But, um, but I have utmost respect for everyone who goes out and does that and has a great experience. And, and uh, yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's no like, oh, like I wish I could have gone or like I hate people who have gone or I don't think people should go. I'm just chill with the whole situation. Right. Just a little side note if you want to include it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so... I wanted to be that that surgeon, that dentist, got anxiety, wasn't going to happen, didn't go on the mission, so that didn't happen. And then I you know, r- was always impacted by movies, and I was thinking about getting into the film industry, um, however that was going to happen. <laughs> right. And right. then uh, I read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it just destroyed me emotionally, and I just felt so involved with these characters. And I made that connection that books and movies do the same thing. And then I made that connection that it's because they both function in a narrative with narrative, but different forms. And I recognize that there must be plot similarities, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you're able to adapt a book into a movie, like, you know, there must be something that's going on similarly. Right. And so I started studying English literature at school and I thought it was super cool. And I (laughs) was lazy with registration. So I I had to take some philosophy courses because those were open to anybody because nobody takes philosophy. Right. And uh, I loved that too. So I was like, I'm going to do both. I'll do a double major. (laughs) So I'm like, sign me up for English and philosophy because they go really hand in hand because philosophy is the foundation of um, critical thought the way, at least in the Western world. And so when you learn how to critically think about literature or film or even sociology, you know, you're you're borrowing from philosophical ideas. And I mean, I I think that literature is kind of like the delivery system of philosophy for the masses. Oh, for sure. Robert McKee wrote a book called Story, which I really recommend to anyone who really wants to get into in depth with storytelling Hmm. um, and narrative forms, especially in film, because that's kind of what he's geared towards. But he talks about how, you know, the, the, the writer, the screenwriter must be somewhat of an everyday philosopher. Like you have to think about things in a critical way. Right. Because what you're really representing is how human beings navigate through conflict and the sacrifices they make when they're presented with dilemma. And mm. that's where the rubber hits the road in any narrative, right? Whether it's a book or a poem or a, or a movie or even someone telling 
their weekend events at the water cooler in the office. You know, mm. like it's all it's all based on you know where the that traction is and that philosophical idea of how do human beings deal with dilemma, right? But mm. oh, I could go on for days about that. But. I mean, I mean, you're welcome to. <laughs> I, I'm I'm interested in hearing about this because I. I enjoy philosophy, mm-hmm. um, and my brother and I are starting uh, uh, kind of like to read through a bunch of yeah uh, books on philosophy, and mm-hmm. um, starting back with like the Greek philosophers and uh, kind of working yes. our way through kind Those of are my thing. favorites. I'm I'm like a there's hopeless romantics, but I'm like a hopeless classicist. I just really? love you know classical thought although there's a lot of bad things that you know they took for granted as true. Of course, yeah, but uh, yeah, I love. Specifically Aristotle, but sorry. Continue. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm curious to, to hear um, maybe, uh, and this would be like good advice for me personally, and maybe good advice for anybody listening. Um, what, what is the right way to study philosophy? Like, how do you, how do you study philosophy? How do you study literature? Yeah. Uh, to try and, you know, and like, I guess, like, what is it for? Like, why? Why would you do that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So first, oh, I love this. I love this. Like, I love talking. <laughs> first of all, you should, you should know this. Like, if you give me an audience mm-hmm. and they're willing to listen, I will go for hours, which is bad. But uh, um, so when you say like, oh, you want to be a part of a podcast where I listen to people? I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Okay. So back to what your question was. Um, so philosophy means a love of wisdom, uh, right. if I remember correctly, which hopefully I do because I'm studying it. But uh, <laughs> and it's the idea behind it was, you know, beginning with records we have, um, you know, kind of the the biggest focused um, efforts in philosophy come from, you know, the classics of the Greeks. You know, we have starting with Socrates and then his student um Oh my goodness. Plato. Plato, yeah. I was going to say Pilates. <laughs> I was like that's not it at all. Um <laughs> Plato and then his student, you know, Aristotle and all that business. But um yeah, so Socrates, his big thing was, you know, you talk with people and you do philosophy and you try to understand logic so that you can you can deduce through logic what is the best way to live a good life, you know, like how can you live a good life and what even is that? Hmm. And um, all branches of philosophy kind of stem from that. So there's, there's aesthetics, you know, like people right. trying to understand what's beauty and how does that affect life and how can you define it? And, and that's kind of the arts. That's where the arts go. Right. So when I'm studying English literature, it's a lot of, a lot of the ideas of classical aesthetics kind of come through and, and such but you can take a philosophy class on aesthetics and you discuss you know all these things but and then there's just like straight up logic and some people just fall in love with like that really mathematical approach to thinking hmm. you know and like it's all about formulating arguments and getting with your premises and then there's yeah i mean there's there's a, a number of different branches and then one that's kind of popular right now i think is uh what's the word i'm looking for so i'm kind of tired but it's when the way people learn things. Oh, um, pedagogy. No, oh, but it's that's it's kind of. But uh, oh, I feel like an imbecile because I should know this. But it's just basically the study of how human beings come to know things, and okay. uh, that's kind of one of the big branches of philosophy right now. But, anyways, back to your question: like, what what is philosophy? What's the purpose? It's basically you know to try and figure out 
how to live the best life, how to live a good life. Hmm. And so it's a love of wisdom because that's what Socrates declared was, you know, the best way to find that out, that answer. Because their theories are based kind of in their religion, right? And I think Socrates ended up getting killed because he was kind of anti-Greek, you know, religion at that time. Mm-hmm. He, he did some funny things with some statues, but I won't get into that. <laughs> but uh, I think he ended up killing himself, yeah, because he drank the the poison or whatever. And anyways, in prison. But uh, someone will have to fact check this. If you're more into philosophy and I'm completely wrong, like feel free to just annihilate me in your own mind because I'm okay with that. But one thing that stands out to me, and this is to your question about how does one approach studying philosophy and English literature and kind of the arts and humanities. Um, Socrates relates a story, whether it's true or not, whatever, um, you know, because he's spoken metaphors and allegorically. But he, uh, he, he goes to an oracle and the oracle says, hey, like, you're the smartest man in the world, right? And Socrates is like, that can't be. Like, that's ridiculous. And he doesn't like oracles to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, you're an imbecile. I'm not the smartest man in the world. And he's like, I'm going to go and find someone who's wiser, right, to prove you wrong. And so right. he goes out and he talks to all these people. And and uh, there's some interesting ideas from aesthetics that stem from this story he shares. But he goes and talks to different people. And he's like, who's the most wise? And they're like, well, this guy's pretty smart. And then he's like... He analyzes them and has a conversation. He's like, yeah, but you're wrong in all these ways, right? And he just keeps doing that. And he's the way he presents his philosophy, or at least that Plato, because Socrates was very anti-writing. Cause right, he didn't like Plato the idea. recorded everything. Yeah, Plato recorded everything. So we also kind of know everything from Plato's perspective. So there's some right. questionability there. But, um, but uh, yeah, so Socrates talks to all these people and, and notes the flaws in their logic and their thinking and their failings. And he goes back to the oracle. He's like, he's like, I went everywhere but couldn't find anyone smart in the oracle. He's like, but, you know, I, I'm not wise. Like, I'm not perfect in my knowledge, right? Like, I don't right. know everything. And the oracle is like, and that's why you're the wisest, right? And then Socrates is like, ah, see, I am the wisest because I admit that I don't know everything. Right. And I think that right there, like, is the best way to start and approach philosophy and literature is hmm. realizing that, you don't know everything and there's no possible way that you ever will. And the questions and the ideas you explore in English literature and philosophy are unanswerable, the majority of them, hmm. you know. And um, if, you, if you're, if you you know, skeptical of that, <laughs> which is a funny word to use in reference to philosophy and literature because it's based in skepticism. But if you're skeptical about that, you go to Descartes, right, who is yeah. the father of modern philosophy and his, you know, his his writings and his uh meditations mm-hmm. and he you know wonders if he can prove his own existence and reality and he, he comes to a conclusion that he can't right and you literally can't you know when you really think about it and so i think it's important to realize that uh you're never going to find answers to the questions you have but you have to find meaningful faith based answers right and that's kind of where you're going hmm. for it and so what you do when you approach philosophy is you I mean, you have to understand how an argument is set up because that's how they write and right. they talk about things. And um, Socrates outlines what that looks like for the Greeks um, in the Phaedrus, which is one of Plato's writings. And uh, 
you know, he talks about separating things into parts. And, and this is all Western thought, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. I have no idea what, what Eastern philosophy is doing right. over there. But uh, they do more interesting stuff as well. But, um, but yeah, so I think just understanding that you don't know everything <laughs> and that you're never right. going to know everything. But when you're writing, but that's what makes it fun. Because when you're writing and you're critiquing literature, you're looking for, for answers that you find, right? Like, I read, I read a book. Um, what's a popular book that I'm, I've written about? You know, don't like just student essays, but try to think. Well, like Shakespeare, for instance. Like I've written about Shakespeare. Yeah. And I, I really dislike Shakespeare. Like I think he was really good at putting things together in a plot. Like he got the plot structure down. Like he yeah. was a classicist, right? He really understood Aristotle's poetics well. But he stole everything he did and he just grabbed his favorite pieces. And when like people in like this modern era, this contemporary time say that he was a genius, I'm like, yeah, he was good at putting things together. But like I don't I really dislike the idea of geniuses. I don't think there's geniuses. I think there's just people who really apply and some people just have more of a natural propensity to gain certain types of knowledge, right? Hmm. So like which I guess is what a genius is, you know, like right. Einstein is arguably a genius genius because he had that, you know, propensity to understand physics and mathematics and right. approach that more philosophically. But anyways, back to what I'm saying, you know, like, yeah, so I study Shakespeare and I write a paper on it. But, you know, where everyone else sees these amazing things, I, I just like to point out how juvenile his plots are, right? And how he's just so bare minimum in the way he expresses them. Like a character will walk out on a stage and be like, oh, like, I'm so glad we just won that war against the Scottish because now we can all go home to our wives. And then they go home to their wives and their wives are like, oh, no, like, hopefully they don't find out that we've been having affairs and love these other men, you know, which is not a plot in Shakespeare at all. But they literally will just say that to the audience. Right. You know? And, and it, which makes sense because theater is a is an oral tradition. It's not so much uh, of a performance, right? And especially in Shakespeare's time. Right, It right. was, uh, you know, you would listen to a play and then there was just the added interest of people moving on a stage kind of idea, hmm. which is really interesting to think about, you know, where movies fit in with all that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh yeah, so, you know, some, someone else would see that and be like, oh, see, Shakespeare's so good because he knows how to talk about a plot without it looking stupid, but still doing it simply. And I'm like, no, 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 that just proves that he didn't care about what he was writing and he just wanted to make money off his plays. And so he just made <laughs> it so bare minimum that anyone could listen and enjoy it. And then right. he would just add poetry here and there when someone was delivering a line, right. which is easy to write, especially in that time because they had wider vocabulary, like they understood the English language better like vocabulary wise and so it was so easy to rhyme you know and sound eloquent and i'm like there's no like real skill involved here he was a capitalist which then i would (laughs) and to prove that i would point to hamlet which people you know historically will say is written about his son hamnet right who who died shortly after birth or when he was young and so i'm like you read hamlet which everyone says is his best you know or like they love the most and they'll be like, yeah, look at that. And I say, well, if you look at this, the themes are much more nuanced, right? Like characters don't come out and just say exactly what's happening in the plot. Right. Like, there's a lot more nuance. And that gives it a greater depth and a richness of of meaning that, you know, mm. is lost in something like uh, Coriolanus, for instance. Coriolanus, however you want to say that. But um, which is like one of those super bare minimum, one of his earlier plays. And it's just so like... Straight out, which I actually enjoy the plot of that 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 play, but it's arguably pretty poorly written. 
Yeah. But, but Hamlet is a really good example of something that's written well because he actually had a purpose in writing it. And I think he put more heart and soul into that than his others. And hmm. um, you can tell, right? And and so <laughs> this is a huge tangent. Oh, Coming fine. back to uh, how that relates to philosophy and English literature, right? Like someone would point to all his plays and say he's a genius, right? And I would only point to one and say it was half decent. You know? Right. But we're both reading the same literature. Right. But... I'm coming at it with my own ideas and, you know, with my own biases, of course, too. Right. And I'm like, yeah, like, this is why he's not a genius. And someone else will say this is why he is. But neither of us will ever know if we're correct because that's something you can't know 100% for sure. Right. But the benefit of it and the value in critique is someone will come and read that essay. Well, they won't read mine because it's not, you know, published by a PhD holder or anything. But, um, you know, they would read that and they say, like, you know what? Like, I can see the value in that. And that helps me understand the literature more, which helps me understand life more, you know, which helps me live Hmm. a better life. Because my purpose in writing that would be like, you know, maybe we should spend more time in the nuance. Because if we like Hamlet more than we like A Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, or Coriolanus, then, you know that's the reason why because it's more nuanced you know and and we Mm. should we should create art that's more nuanced in that sense and and so there's benefit and also it equips people with um, critical ways of understanding art which is really important in today's day and age especially if you like reading books yeah yeah you got harry potter you got your teenage novels you know but when you become an adult and those don't do it for you anymore you have to read something like uh well paper i did recently was on the sentimentalist which is by uh, Johanna or Johanna Skibsrud, a Canadian. And um, I, when I first read the book, because the way I analyze is I read the book completely um, the first time through and I write my initial thoughts. And then I go through again and I really just dig deep, you know, and then I consider other works, um, critical works, interestingly enough, on, let's say, Canadian literature and the devices that are commonly used and kind of what they usually mean. And so I go in equipped with those tools and I just like tear the book apart and look at all these different connections. And by the end, usually I've got a pretty clear picture of what my own personal critical analysis of it is going to be Hmm. because I understand those connections and the way they presented it to me. And so with this book, for instance, the first time I read The Sentimentalist, I was like, I hate this book because there's no obvious plot right because it's kind of the exact opposite of what shakespeare was doing it was just so modernist like postmodern. Right. well it's not even it's not like james joyce you know but like it was it was written in a way that was like it's less accessible the plot right and so i didn't like it the first time i read it because i was like she's just trying to sound so lyrical and poetic and sentimental right which is the point of the book right right <laughs> but then when i went back with my critical tools of analysis and I, like, I ripped this book apart and really looked into it and dug deep i loved it you know at the end of the book i was like wow like man like i just love these characters i just want them to succeed so badly and i want them to get over their trauma from the vietnam war and be there for their families and be present in the moment hmm. but i wouldn't i wouldn't have liked the book if i hadn't have read you know, the, the critical ideas on Canadian literature. And if I hadn't sat down and critically analyzed this book and when I was in the elevator, we, we did a presentation on it and I was taking the elevator down and there was some girls in my class saying there, and they, they were talking to me about how they hated the book when they read it. But then when they heard our explanation in the paper, we, we wrote me and my classmates, they're like, Oh, it makes so much more sense. Now we can see the value in it. 
I was like, there you go. That's the power of critique. That's the purpose, right? Right. That being said, <laughs> another tangent, I think that's also a sign that it's a poorly written book because if you have to critically analyze it to enjoy it, what's the purpose, right? You're writing for cri- like critics. You're not writing right. for, for a wider audience. Right. And there will be people who are just, you know, like that style and they'll find value in it. But in my mind, art is meant to communicate things to the masses. So why would you write it specifically for like, critical right it's like preaching to the choir yeah right and bringing that into film like uh two opposite examples are michael bay and darren aronofsky right and they're both film school graduates yeah and i have a lot of thoughts on film school that i'll keep to myself but (laughs) and by the way like a little disclaimer for anyone listening and for you and myself like my ideas will shift and change over time so none of this is concrete even though i talk about it like it is like I always change what I think about things. And so, like, who knows? Tomorrow I might love Shakespeare and think he's a genius. You know? In three but, weeks uh, when this airs, you might be, like, <laughs> I might be on in a love different with boat. Like, yeah. But Michael Bay and Darren Aronofsky, they graduate film school, which teaches you the techniques of, of how to, you know, make a movie. And also, you know, recently I think it's kind of taken a turn. This is all what I suspect, you know, mm-hmm. from what I see in recent movies that because there's definitely an uptick in film school educated directors and filmmakers now in the industry mm-hmm. because it's only like a hundred years old, you know, like the real industry. So like right. it, you know, it, this is the first time I think we've seen a large generation of film school graduates, mm-hmm. but I think they teach you more on how to like please an audience and like the things like the generic conventions of the medium. Right. Which are things that like are good to understand but aren't shouldn't be considered laws of the medium, but I think a lot of people consider them that way. Right. And Michael Bay is a perfect example of that, right? Because he makes movies that are just for the masses, right? Yeah. Like who doesn't want to see exploding robots in space, right? Or like an asteroid and Bruce Willis drilling into the core of it with a bomb, you know? Like yeah. he just he knows well what you know his audience wants to see, and he just packs in as many of those things that he can. And he strikes me as the kind of person who meets those quotas of you need to have so many minutes of you know your main character on the screen, and at this point these kinds of events need to have taken place in the plot. Right. And he holds that form really well. But Darren Aronofsky, and so he makes movies for the masses, but they're watered down, right? And they don't really have much value. Like they're fun to watch with your bros. You know, right. like Transformers and stuff. But, uh, yeah. And I respect what he does immensely. Like, I think he nails what his... His like, niche. His niche, his, right? Yeah. Like, I think he nails that perfectly. So it's, there's no, you know... Right. No critique from me on him on... on From me on him for that. <laughs> you know, like, I... Uh, yeah, I think he does well. But uh, with, with Darren Aronofsky, though, like, he's also film school educated... But he understands those conventions just as well as Michael Bay does, I think. And again, this is all speculation. But uh, he twists those conventions so that he makes movies that um, to really appreciate and understand, you have to have a critical knowledge of what those conventions are. Hmm. So he makes movies for the cinephile, you know, who if people don't know what that is. It's just someone who loves movies so much, right? It's kind of an unfortunate name because it, you know, connotates a lot. But (laughs) um, 
but yeah, he makes movies for the cinephile and the critic who just love movies so much that they've seen so much and they understand the conventions. And so he shows people how he deviates from that. And he's kind of like a postmodern filmmaker, so to speak. Hmm. And he pushes the boundaries of what you can do in a film. And he kind of turns the conventions on their head. But his audience is small and the people who like his movies will probably be a small group because of that. And and again, you know, like huge respect for what he does because I think he's really good at his niche. Um, like one of his movies, Mother, for instance, like I haven't seen it, but I've seen a lot of clips because it just doesn't really interest me. It gives me the heebie-jeebies to see yeah. you know, his trailers. A lot of his movies do. But uh, the reason it gives you the heebie-jeebies is because he tries to put those conventions on their head as, as much as he can. And he does really well. But those movies are for the critic, right? And so I, I think, to me, in my mind, the way I think about what a movie should be, I would see that as a bad movie in my critical sense of what a, a movie is supposed to do, right? Hmm. Um, I don't think he's a bad filmmaker. Like, I think he does really well in what he does. But it, personally, I just think those films don't have as much value as they could because because they're inaccessible to someone without that, that critical knowledge. Right. Whereas with Michael Bay, I don't think they're as good as they can be because he just, he doesn't regard that critical aspect of them at all. And so like in my mind, Michael Bay and William Shakespeare are like the same person, you <laughs> know, like they, they make, they make movies and plays in the same way. That are appealing. Yeah. Appealing to the masses. Right? But a little hollow maybe. But a little hollow. And so for me, in my mind, I don't even remember what your question was, but here I am. Me neither, but I'm enjoying this. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, so in my mind, um, the perfect movies are the movies that are like if Michael Bay's movies and Darren Aronofsky's movies had a love child, right? And mm. it, just, it was just slam dunk right in the middle, you know, because it offers you nuance that crit critics will like and be able to point to, but not so much not nuance that it's hidden. Yeah. And it will be applicable to as many people as it possibly can without losing all of its thematic meaning. Right. You know, and there's a lot of things I'd have to define, you know, for that sentence to have more meaning. You know, right. There's a lot of nuance there. But, but uh, yeah, and so <laughs> this is where people will disagree with me, I'm sure. But for me, those people, and this has a lot to do with their style, those kinds of people are people like... <laughs> He's controversial because, you know, people say he panders. But Christopher Nolan, yeah. I think, is one of those directors. Denis Villeneuve, who proudly, in my mind, is a French-Canadian. Um, so, you know, that's kind of cool. But he's one of those people that can really marry those two worlds together. Ridley Scott, um, he's made tons of stuff. But I think his best movies, you know, really find that, that place in the middle ground. And I think the first person to really do that well... Um, and kind of launched us into this newer era of uh, like pre-Spielberg, I guess, era of movies was uh, Kubrick, of course, you know, who everyone says is amazing, but most people who will say that and don't understand why. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, but he's he's like the Shakespeare of movies, because if you can if you bring up his name and say something about him then, you know, the circles, the critical circles of film will be like, oh, yes, <laughs> very educated, you know, which, <laughs> right. which is funny because I took a class on Shakespeare, you know, as one does in English literature. And uh, <laughs> we were talking about how he holds cultural weight, right? Like he has cultural relevance. And, and when you bring Shakespeare up, it indicates to people that you're intelligent and you're educated, right? Right. Even if you don't know anything about him. Right. Which, it's like a signaling thing yeah. as opposed to a sincere, deep appreciation. Exactly. Right. right. But you can have a sincere, deep appreciation. But if you bring up Shakespeare, 
in a conversation at like a wine tasting, for instance, like you'll you'll come off as you know the the, the smart, intelligent person. The right, you know. And I won't go too much on a tangent with this, but to to prove that point, um, the beginnings of film in the silent era, they're like, well, this is a really cool medium, but people are just going to penny galleries and watching like stupid, like short films of coyotes, like you know, being shot by cowboys and stuff like that. And they're right. like, well, how can we legitimize this? this medium and so they started recording scenes in silent movies of like of shakespeare because they're like shakespeare people he holds cultural weight so if we can show people shakespeare on film they'll take film seriously interesting and it worked wonders right because look at where we are now right Right. and kenneth branagh for instance like was like uh, one of those people he's the the shakespeare expert in film right like he's oh he's done so many plays yeah and, and done them on film, you know, and, and it carried all the way to him and people still involve him. And I think it's still, you know, they still seek in some form to legitimize the form of film. Oh, goodness, that was a bad sentence, but I think you get the gist. Mm-hmm. But uh, back to what I was saying. Oh, yeah. Finding that middle ground, though, right? Like you want to appeal to that intelligence, but then you also want to have that nuance and you want to appeal to the largest group of people. So Ridley Scott at his best, you know, Gladiator, Alien, um, Blade Runner's good, but I think you know you have to be kind of critically involved to fully appreciate mm. that movie. the The eighties one, the new one is better. Like I think you don't have to be too critically involved, and that's a Danny Villeneuve movie. Really, interestingly enough, yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah, those three always stand out in my mind. Oh, and Damien Chazelle, who I'm so sad is going to television because I love his stuff. He did La La Land, he did First mm. Man, he did Whiplash. And um, those are the three big movies I can think of. And before that, when he was a student, he did uh, a musical, interestingly enough, because he was a music student, which kind of informed Whiplash. But um, hmm. which is about a jazz drummer. And which, oh, which is, oh, I love that movie for the writing, because that's one movie I just sit down and I read while I'm, like, watching. And I'm like, oh, like, the nuance. Because if you make a movie about jazz music, oh, I have a lot of thoughts on jazz too, by the way, but I won't go into that. But if you make a movie about a guy trying to be a jazz drummer, like you can, you can go into so many indulgent areas that it just is trash. Yeah. Right. And so nobody would fund his movie. And I don't know why, but I imagine that's kind of why, because they're like, this is just about a kid practicing the drums to be in a jazz band. Like nobody cares about that. But then what he did was he made a concept short um, from a scene of the movie, you know, one of the most, you know, conflict. It's basically the inciting incident right and uh and the way he navigates this guy directing this drummer to in this jazz band you know the way it's written like the 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 conflict is so nuanced and it it just rises and falls so well that like people saw the value and i think they they funded it after that Hmm. and if you watch that movie you're like wow that was amazing and like like i was just like on the edge of my seat you know watching this movie and it just was good but then when you think about it, you're like, this is about a kid practicing the drums trying to get into a jazz band. Like, it's the nerdiest, stupidest thing I've ever heard of. But the movie's so good. Right. And I think Damien Chazelle is one of those people who just really sees that middle ground, right, where he he considers what he does critically and intelligently, and then he executes it with really good sensibility, right? Right. And, um, and Michael Bay is, he's a really, the way he makes his movies are very they're sensual experiences and not in the sexual sense of course but right but in in the fact that they're just they're sensory experiences um and any art is of course a sensory experience but if you can if you can guide somebody's sensory experience to critical themes and philosophical ideas that's where 
that's where you get your your classics and your masterpieces um hmm. And so Damien Chazelle was really good at that. But he went to television. Now he's doing like a musical because he loves music, right? So he mm-hmm. did, that's why he did La La Land. Um, but he, he went to now he's doing a musical TV show, I think, for Netflix or Amazon. Really? Yeah. And I'm like, dude, come back to, to film because his last movie he did was First Man. And I loved that movie. I haven't seen With it. Ryan Gosling. But it was good. Plays Neil Armstrong. Or, yeah. Yeah, Neil Armstrong. I always get him and Lance and... Louis confused. No, <laughs> I always remember Louis. All the arms, right? But uh, yeah, so he went to television. But but yeah, back to the idea. It's about finding that middle ground, and so that's what I endeavor to do. And that's something I wouldn't understand unless I went to school for English literature. Hmm. It's also something I wouldn't understand because um, I think my critical journey started like in really moving towards that was when. I was wanting to make more movies, right? So I made Funky Cops mm-hmm. and uh, all the way back there. And then like a year later, I was like, why? Well, you know, we got a lot of really good reception from from making that movie. Sorry, this is going all over the place. No, no. So if you I, want more direction. Just keep 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 going. Keep going. You you have thoughts. You have thoughts to share, please. Oh, too many. Too many. But uh yeah, so we made Funky Cops, and me and Harrison were, like, pretty good friends, and we were making people laugh all the time because, you know, we just had this really good rapport, and, like, we would just joke with each other and the way we behaved, and we just kind of formed into one being at that point in time, I think. <laughs> and so people just loved us, and so they, um, which sounds really conceited, but, you know, people enjoy being around us. And yeah. so they asked us to be the hosts for this film festival that Funky Cops was made for. Which, yeah, 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 yeah. Only, like, 60 people showed up to this thing. <laughs> but we were like... Let's have an audience award, right? Like every film gets an award because we're nice and inclusive. But then we're like, let's have an audience choice award. We're like, I wonder who's going to win that. And so we were hosting this and we had to announce it. And so they did this survey on their phones to yeah. say which one they like, liked the most. <laughs> and then they're like, we get up and they're like, we're like, and the winners are us. <laughs> we're just like <laughs> super awkward about it. But but people loved it. And we're like, yeah. oh, like what a rush. Because yeah. for me and Harrison, oh, we just we just love that limelight and like, not in like the sense that you know we like being the center of attention because we're both pretty introverted people actually. Right. But uh, we love bringing an experience to people and like influencing yeah. their experience, and which you know, film for me is the ultimate way to achieve that. And Harrison's a musician, so you know, music is is his love and right. Sense. Right. Anyway, so we did Funky Cops, and then we go to do Dance Off, and uh, Dance Off is another classic that people should go and watch because I think it's funny. Um, it it's really, way better it, made than Funky Cops. It is, it is significantly yeah. higher, higher production quality. value. Technically, it's better than Funky Cops, but the humor might not appeal to Fun- as Funky many. Cops has like a really... I don't, I don't know how to describe the humor, but it, like it's a, different, it's a different type of humor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah for yeah. sure. But Dance Off is a technically better movie by a long shot. Like yeah. you really clearly stepped up the production <laughs> yeah which has a lot to do with my sister because she was the one who like took the images oh right yeah but, uh, but yeah no and i was using dance off more as as practicing techniques for film because these comedies were really just practice fields for me to try and figure out how to technically make a movie right but then i was you know while i was writing dance off i was like yeah but i really want to like philosophically understand what i'm doing because i recognize that michael bay darren aronofsky difference in that marriage and in christopher nolan and in danny villeneuve and really scott and damon chazelle i was like they they find that middle ground but you know if i only understand the technical aspects i'll make david you know 
James Cameron. Sorry, I was going to say David Cameron. Who's David Cameron? That was the former prime minister of the UK. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> James Cameron. James Cameron, right? Who is, he's a technical guy. Like, yeah. Oh my goodness. He loves the technical aspects and he'll, he'll say that, right? Yeah. And that's why he made Titanic, right? Which has, I, I think it still holds records for like most expensive set or most like functional or whatever with like really? the Titanic. And then Avatar, of course, which is an example. Yeah, mind blowing. Most people look at because- that 3D technology was, yeah, mind-blowing, and the CGI is incredible. Or even uh, Alita Battle Angel, which, you know, critically was a failure, but um, box office-wise, too, I don't think it did too well. But, like, the visuals are so amazing because he was really, like, really involved with the technical aspects and the moving CGI with, like, the facial stuff. Right. It looks good. But, um, yeah, I was like, if I only understand the technical aspects, I'll just make James Cameron movies, which are really good for him and his niche. Yeah. But I was like, but I recognize when I watch something like Avatar and any movie, even Christopher Nolan and Danny Villeneuve and them, like, there's things they could do better. But I was like, I feel like thematically and emotionally, I don't get as involved and I don't get m- as much out of it of a James Cameron or a Michael Bay movie as I would, you know a Christopher Nolan movie. And I was like, so I can't just understand the technical aspects. I need to understand what story is at its heart. I need to know philosophically what the technical aspect reveals to the audience. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I started looking at it as the technical aspects of putting a film together are there to um, uncover, you know, and expose to people and give them a way in, like a window into this, this world of emotion and philosophical understanding of, of themes, right? And so mm-hmm. I recognize that there's something in this this abstract word that everyone throws around of themes, right? Like thematically, there's something going on. And so I was like, I want to write dance off in the story form, right? Like I want to understand what the story form is and I want to write it as a story. Right. So my good friend, Adam O'Brien, who, oh my goodness, he's one of those people that just puts a smile on my face whenever I think of him or see him because he's just so cheerful and optimistic and yeah. like just takes everything in stride so well. Um, but he, he was, he's an accountant, but he, uh, which is, you know. Is he? Yeah. That's oh. so alien to me. Like, yeah. Like I'm always like, he loves it. It's his passion. Right? Really? And for me, I'm like, it's a good thing you like it, Adam, because I could not do this at all. Yeah. Like, I'm glad this is your passion, but I don't understand. <laughs> Anyways, but he was taking an elective course in college and or university. And um, it was it's story by Robert McKee. And because he was uh, sorry, the class he was taking. <laughs> wow. I formed that very poorly. <laughs> he was taking a class about writing, I think, or story in general. Okay. And his professor used kind of as the textbook or source for a lot of, you know, ideas on story, this book called Story by Robert McKee, who right. was involved in the film industry. And Adam's like, hey, dude, like, I just took this class last semester about story. And the guy who wrote this book was talking about screenwriting the whole time. But, right. you know, the principles apply to all story. So he's like, here, you can have it. And I was like, cool. And I just, it just sat on my shelf for like a year because <laughs> I was like, this is probably just nonsense. Because in my... This is really dumb of me, by the way, because in my mind, there was two things I was worried about with learning things. Number one, I was really, I'm really, well, I was at that point in time, I was really bad about learning something and viewing it as a law, right? Like this is a right. law. And so right. I'd read something on the internet and I'd be like, oh That's my the goodness. way it is. That's the way it is. Like all of my shots have to have orange and, and blue colors in them for them to look good, right? Which right. is completely stupid. 
but I would just be like, that's a lot. I need to follow that. And so yeah. I didn't want to read a lot or go to film school because I didn't want to come out feeling like there were laws and just make, you know, generic movies over right. and over again. But second of all, I was really suspicious of anyone who claimed to be an expert in the field of story, right? I was like, nobody can know exactly, like, what makes a movie good, right? And I was like, I'll just discover it on my own for my own studies, which is so inefficient. That's why we have universities. Right. It's because they speed up that process for you if you're willing to engage in critical thought, yeah. which is another tangent I won't go on. But uh, <laughs> Next time. Next time. But, uh, yeah, so Robert McKee wrote this book called story adam gives it to me sits on my shelf because i don't want to fill my head with wrong ideas or like read something that i'm suspicious of having value and then uh i read it like a month before i wrote dance off i was like you know what this guy has some interesting things to say i was like and i'll follow it generally but there's a lot in there i was like i don't agree with that because i'm being a punk and then uh it just kind of sat on my shelf for a while again after that but then i started reading it and then he pulls a lot of references from Aristotle's poetics. Sorry, I was just trying to remember how this is connected to anything I've been saying. We're talking about dance off. Dance off, right. Oh yeah, my journey where I get yeah. to, yeah. In school and why how to get into philosophy and literature. <laughs> Sorry. No. So yeah, so he references Aristotle's poetics all the yeah. time. I'm like, okay, well, you know, Aristotle seems to know what he's talking about. Like every time I agree with Robert McKee, he's always referencing aristotle i was like i'll just go to the source the poetics right so i go on amazon well i go to the library and i i like take out the book and i start reading i was like oh this is dense but this is good like this has got a lot of really good stuff that i can instantly agree with because he he's very socratic in in the way that he approaches thought right like he pulls all the parts off of a thing and understands them separately and understands what like the real core of the issue is right and that's what he does with because that was kind of one of the first aesthetic treatments, right? One of the first explorations into aesthetics. And he was talking about uh, tragedy, which was the dominant dramatic form on the stage in Greek or in Greece at the time. Hmm. And uh, so he was like, well, there's good plays and there's bad plays. So what makes the difference? And he sat down, studied that and showed us his his treatise on it, which was the poetics. And so I take that from the library because Robert McKee talks about it. And I read it. I'm like, this is good, but it's got a lot in it. So I'm going to have to spend more time. So I go on Amazon and I order the Harvard edition that also comes with, I don't know how to say his name, but I think it's Longinus's, um ideas on the sublime, which is another concept I love. But, uh, and I read this, I was like, there's so much good stuff in here. And so what I started doing was I would read the poetics and then I'd go to Robert McKee and I'd read that. And I'd be like, I understand what he's saying so much more. And then I'd go back to the poetics. I'm like, now I understand what he's saying so much more. And I understood these texts together. And like my understanding of where value, right, where the value, the meaning and the, the emotional impact of a story comes from, you know, that just grew immensely. Right. And I was like, oh, like, and the theory behind it just suddenly started, you know, it started percolating. And, uh, and I was like, okay, I need more of this. And so that is kind of what led me to English literature as well. Mm. And, um, and which equipped me to really understand how to write well when I got into literature. Cause I, like, in my classes, I'd always get really good, um, you know, comments about my ideas. So, like, your ideas are really well thought out and you understand like really well what you're supposed to be doing here and I was like yes someone's validating my 
you know, knowledge, right. <laughs> but to my intelligence. But also, you know, it was a sign to me that I was, you know, starting to really understand what the foundations of these mediums are, you know, with the storytelling. And in reading books, like, it's become really obvious to me now. When I, I'm reading a book, I can see the turns and the weaving of the plot and how it's folding value in for later. And um, I love 19th century novels because I think they had, like, a phenomenal understanding of the poetics, right? Because that's what they were studying. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, Shakespeare studied as well. Hmm. And uh, and they had that, but then they also, because the novel it had about, which started in the 1600s, um, you know, and there's various claiming to be the first novels, novels from that time. Right. But it's had 200 years to mature, and it's the dominant form of entertainment, takes over what poetry used to have among the people, which was the dominant form of entertainment, right. and also storytelling. And you just had um, you had novels, but when it was 200 years more mature, they really had a, an understanding of that form. Like, they they understood the technical aspects of the the novel so well and they also had that deep rich understanding of the poetics because they were all most of them were fairly well-educated people right from rich families and such and so their writing in the 19th century is beautiful and so economical right like people will look at a charles dickens book and they'll be like it's 500 pages like he, why did he have to write that much? But if you read A Tale of Two Cities, like there's nothing you could pull out of that book and it still retain the amount of value it has at, at the climax, right? Hmm. Which is a sign of masterful you know, creation. Because if, if you only include what's pertinent to your plot um, you know, and you don't put any extra in, that means that you understand like the form and the philosophy behind it perfectly, in my mind. That's the way I see it. Hmm. And so... I recognize that in people like Charles Dickens and Charlotte Bronte and Harriet Beecher Stowe is another one of those, you know, iconic people in my mind. Um, oh yeah, I could go in about Herman Melville and and, uh, and and Dumas, but I won't get into that because they're they're not as good, right? They don't quite understand as well, and so they're really right. good contemporary um, comparisons for people like Charles Dickens and Charlotte Bronte, right? Right. Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens only include what's necessary. Oh, yeah. And the way they use their language, oh, like, because their vocabularies. And Charles Dickens, oh, he's very good with language. And people make fun of him for, like, his very specific style. Yeah. But, like, but they were really good at choosing words because they understood things poetically as well because they were, like, in the middle of the Romantic era. Right. And so people were really, you know, thinking about sensibility at the time. And, and, uh, Charlotte Bronte is a perfect example of that. Oh, goodness. Why am I going on all these tangents? Because I'm passionate it's, about it. Yeah, it's something you enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Charles Dickens, the language he uses, like, he'll use certain consonants and, and syllable sounds that, that like, support his, his conflict, which is incredible. Like, he understands language in the form of the novel so well that he can, he'll use, like, um, a really good smaller example is an Emily Dickens poem. I think it's called The Narrow Fellow in the Grass, and it's about a snake, right? And she uses a lot of S's, right? And, like, it's really easy to see in poetry because that's, a, that's a, a big poetic device, right, is using is using vocabulary and sounds um, right. of words. And so this this narrow fellow in the grass sneaks and, and you know, slithers through the grass, right? And it's so, so S-y, right? And it sounds like a snake, and it makes you feel that slitheringness. 
But Charles Dickens does that in his his books, right? These massive novels, and mm. he uses this this very specific no, um, this very specific sound of his words, and and it elevates his plot. And that for me, that's one of the keys for me is every every artistic decision you make, every technical decision, needs to support the plot. And so for me, understanding the technical parts of making a movie or a book are are easy, right? Like you put words on a page, you record an image as it happens, hmm. and you use your lighting and such. But um, understanding how to inform those decisions by plot, that's what makes the difference. Hmm. And you can't understand how to inform this is all my ideas, right? Again, these are subject to change. <laughs> right, right. But uh, you can't understand what makes a plot good and how that informs your actions until you understand, well, exactly what I just said, what makes a plot good, mm-hmm. where the value of the story itself comes from. Because Jane Eyre is a really good example of that um, because it's first a book and then it's been made into like four different movies, right? And the, the last one of which is my favorite. Um, but... Oh, yeah. So so when you adapt a book to a movie, you have to understand the themes and the plot so well to be able to pick and choose what supports the most meaningful themes to you. Right. right? And so that informs your decisions as a writer and as a director. So the most recent Jane Eyre really focused on the philosophies of love, which is a huge theme throughout the book Jane Eyre. But there's a lot of different things you could concentrate on because you could concentrate on a class struggle, for instance, because that's one of the thematic elements. Right. But you'd have to pick and choose very specific scenes from a book to incorporate into a movie, which has less um, ability to 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 communicate to involve large numbers of themes. Right. Like I right. think it's right. It's just as effective. I mean, I think any form is just as effective as another, as long as it's you know done well and you understand how it works. But uh, novels, for instance, like Charles Dickens novels have like hundreds of themes and subplots that weave themselves in. And people always make the joke that when you're reading a Charles Dickens movie, you get introduced to a city of people. Whereas like when you're reading Charlotte Bronte, you understand like two or three, right? But uh, Dumas was really bad for that too. Just like so many characters. Um, He wrote uh, um, The uh, Count of Monte Cristo, which is a funny book. I like it. It's good. Hmm. Climax is disappointing, though. <laughs> it's because he doesn't understand the the form, right? Like right. in my mind, that's what my critical mind right. attaches that's, to. Yeah, right? that's that's what you see. Yeah, in it. But uh, but yeah, so so they take the the themes of love, you know, and the scenes that support this this exploration of themes of what is actual love and what's important in a relationship, and they pull all those scenes from from the book Jane Eyre, and they put that into the the movie with Michael Fassbender, which I recommend. Um, and then they explore that theme, that singular theme, and a few other ones, and some little subplots. Mm. And they focus on that for the movie. And that informs the way that they take the images, right? The way that they capture the cinematography of it and the way that the actors behave because they're focusing, they're focusing on particular themes. Right. So you're not going to see Jane Eyre judging um, her, her aunt very much at all in the movie. Like, I think it's barely even mentioned at the beginning, if I'm remember correctly but that's like like a third of the book is her childhood and this class struggle she experiences and her thoughts on and philosophies on how like this class struggle is just ridiculous Hmm. you know and how people think they're better than you but you're not going to see that in the michael fassbender movie because the writer and the director wanted to use the story in that plot to expose themes of love you know and true love and 
and they do that to, to very good effect in economy. So they'll cut complete sections out that don't that aren't relevant. And I think the most masterful um, example of that is the Lord of the Rings, because the Lord of the Rings, the books have so much in them, right? Mm-hmm. Like like Tom Bombadil, for instance, right? Yeah. Like, there's like huge sections about, well, like some sections on him, but you're not going to see him in the movies because it doesn't support Peter Jackson's central theme of, you know, what what do you do to save your home and how valuable is your home to you? You know, like what would right. you do to save your home? Well, Tom Bombadil has nothing to do with that. Right. right. Like he doesn't present any conflict that makes that more meaningful. So it's masterful the way that they're able to have three huge movies that were huge productions that come together on one central theme. And it's because Peter Jackson talked to his crew and his assistant directors. And he's like, this is what we need to do. And these are decisions we need to make in order to, to elevate those themes. And there's subplots and other themes like Aragorn. It's about, um, you know, reaching your potential and overcoming your, your fears of destiny. Right. And, and such, but anyways, back to Charles Dickens and how he uses, language right like he's really economical in the way he uses language because he his plots which are so good i love them so much you know inform the artistic and technical aspects of what he does the same way like when you're doing an adaptation it's just an easy way to see how that how the plot affects choice and uh there's and herman melville was really good at that too um like his diction was really nice Mm. um but his plots were a little watery <laughs> watered down which is funny because he wrote moby dick <laughs> it's a little bit of literary humor <laughs> for you there <laughs> but uh there's oh, i wish i should have committed this to memory but uh he talks about what it's like to be in a crow's nest and he loves the sea right and he really wants to express how much he loves the sea and it's you know captivating elements and how you know man can be driven mad by trying to master his own fate and the sea is a perfect counterexample of a man being able to master his fate because you can't tame the sea you know and that's embodied in Moby Dick the whale who you know Ahab has to kill to prove that he has dominion you know as a man over his fate right and ultimately he doesn't right because Moby Dick takes him down and kills him <laughs> so but he's driven to madness needing to prove that right but the main character the narrator of the novel who we follow he's trying to understand his own life's journey right and he so he goes on a ship he's like might as well go on this whaling ship and see some of the world because i've got nothing going for me and he sits in the crow's nest and uh herman melville really wants you to get what it feels like to sit in a crow's nest and so he's like and he's really good at starting and ending his chapters with really poetic language that really make you feel what he's trying to say and it goes something like, seat yourself sultanically among the moons of Saturn and like look down on earth and, and consider the doings of man. And that's what it feels like to sit in a crow's nest is basically what he says. And I'm like, whoa, like that's so epic. Like seat yourself sultanically among the moons of Saturn and look down on earth and consider the doings of man, right? And the workings of man. I'm like, that's so powerful. Like how come I don't get that when I'm reading jk rowling you know what i mean which is a whole nother subject but back to what i'm trying to say i guess is that shows the maturity over 200 years because if you read mall flanders by daniel defoe who was one of the earliest novelists yeah it doesn't even have chapter separations like it's just i don't even think it has paragraphs i think it's just like like 400 pages of just words right and he just gives you a random plot that's not really well constructed and he just kind of he doesn't use poetry very much right like he doesn't use poetic language he just kind of 
tells you the events as they happen. And, you know, the climax has some effect. But give that 200 years to mature and people have mastered the technical aspects of the novel and they understand those technical aspects so well that they're able to employ it to enrich their plots, Hmm. right? And so I guess that was the whole point of that extremely long tangent was to bring that back to movies, right? Same goes for movies, same goes for for photography, for podcasts even, right? Right. Um, Because if you can understand the form, like the technical aspects of film to, you know, the highest degree and how you can manipulate them. And if you understand plot and its importance and how it affects an audience to, you know, its its maximum, then you can combine those two knowledges. And and then when you combine plot perfectly with, with good technical understanding, then you end up with classics and masterpieces, right? Hmm. And uh, the 70s, you know, people romanticize the 70s in film all the time. But um, I think it was a really good sweet spot for film because, first of all, Kubrick kind of opened a door into a new way of thinking because it was still very theatrical up to that point. Mm. Like it was basically, like if you think about Spartacus and, and Ben-Hur, right? Like it was basically a really high production, like high production value stage right. play that they recorded. Um, and yeah, which is interesting because like Orson Welles comes from that tradition, right? And he's one of the biggest influences on early film. Well, just thinking of that. Anyways, <laughs> he he recorded Shakespeare plays. He did a lot of Shakespeare plays really? in film, which is interesting. Back to my earlier point about you know legitimizing the medium of film. Anyways, but the seventies were good because Kubrick opens a door and he's like, "Look, you can apply really good sensibility to these technical aspects." And I think that's ultimately realized in two thousand one, a Space Odyssey. Very minimal right. dialogue, but you know you get a, you get a really clear feeling of what he's trying to make you feel. And it's hilarious because some people say that movie's so boring because it's just people moving through space. But if you read Kubrick interviews, he wanted you to, to understand how boring it was to travel through space, you know, hmm. and how, like, you do nothing for so long and then suddenly there's an event, right, and it's a big deal. And that's what happens when Hal, you know, tries to kill them and, and then right. they come across the monolith at the end near Saturn and, and everything. And, um, well, seat yourself sultanically <laughs> among the moons of Saturn, Hal. But um, <laughs> uh, bad joke. I'm such a nerd. No, that was pretty good. But, I'm uh, impressed. Thank you. <laughs> Dang it all together. But uh, yeah, and he showed people how you don't have to use dialogue, but like the way he uses music, for instance, is really impactful in that movie because when they come across the monolith, it's that really dissonant choral stuff going on right and it just makes you really uneasy but if you turn off a sound and watch that scene like the scenes with the monolith that big black box like it's just people walking up to a big black box and you're just like huh but Mm. you add that image which is still striking because the way the monolith is designed is like this big black box you know like this big black slab that's just kind of ominous but then you add the music like those two technical aspects of the medium coming together to elevate Kubrick's plot, you really get a feeling for what the moment's trying to communicate to you. And it's also really poignant when um, um, thus spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra, right? Or also Sprach Zarathustra, I think is the German word for the song, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Like the, the classic, like, right? That people, make parodies of in movies all the time but the reason being because Kubrick used it in such an iconic way to support what he was you know what he was doing with the imagery and the plot so um when the monkeys at the beginning learn how to use tools it's supposed to be about the evolution of man and uh people refer to the jump cut from 
apes, you know, turning into humans or learning how to use tools and then, you know, getting that to, and then suddenly there's space traveling. Like there's a jump cut in time, you know, thousands of years, millions of years. Right. But the reason it works so well and that it's so impactful is because it's it's that song, right? Like the monkeys grab a bone and it's they're hilarious because they're just people in suits. But right. they start smacking each other and killing each other with these bones. And then uh, suddenly they realize that it's a tool, right? And then that, that music starts and it just elevates and you're like, whoa, like there's potential being filled. And, you know, it's reaching this, this, this goal and it's amazing, right? And you feel that. And then when it hits that final moment, the jump cut happens. And then suddenly these humans are traveling in space and you're like, whoa, like that was mind blowing. And it would not be even half as mind blowing if he hadn't incorporated all the technical aspects of the medium in order to elevate that very specific moment, right? Because he uses music, he uses imagery. There's slow motion with the monkey with throwing the bone in the air, right, as right. the tool. And that's when the jump cut happens, right? So even slowing it down, like he he was notoriously, you know, like me- meticulous and so detail-oriented that people didn't really like working with him for that reason, I think. But it's because, you know, he knew that, you know, he needed to elevate the plot with those with those technical aspects into mm. great effect to amazing effect in that movie because yeah everything that happens so he opens a door in film because you're coming from recorded stage plays to like this is an audio visual experience and this medium stands on its own two legs because the technical aspects open up all these emotional possibilities when right. you incorporate the plot into it and um, a really good example of seeing how that door was opened for Kubrick. He's watching, uh, I believe it was his first movie, and it was called, um, oh, shoot, Paths of Glory. Okay. Which, you know, people reference all the time, right? Like, Paths of Glory, haha, <laughs> you know, and they, like there's a, there's a Mario Party game called Maths of Glory, right? Which is funny. And I think Kubrick probably pulled it from literature or something, but it's, I think it was kind of made iconic by him in that sense because it was a critical success. But if you watch it, it's in black and white and, and all that because it's an earlier film, mm-hmm. I think from the 60s. But he, uh, the way the characters are blocked, which means the way they move around the scene um, for the benefit of the listeners and such, you know, how the director, where he tells them to stand and how they interact with each other, that's called blocking. And um, the way that they move around the scenes and the camera work is done, it feels very theatrical. Like um, you, it feels like they're on a stage walking around which is interesting because it's Kubrick, right? But he's entering the form kind of standing on the, sh- the soldiers, sorry, what? The shoulders of the people who came before. He's standing on their shoulders like Orson Welles and such and, you know, kind of bringing that theatrical influence in. But then there's moments in that movie where you're like, whoa, like that is really like modernist, you know, and like the way it's presented, like it feels like something that could be in a movie today because the way that the camera's positioned or the way the characters interact you know, like it's a really forward thinking, you know, way of, of directing the film that you, you don't see contemporarily in that in that time period that he's in. And then you can you can see those seeds of, you know, his ultimate sense, you know, sensual audiovisual experience of Space Odyssey, right? Which marries those two worlds perfectly. So it's really cool to see like his his journey from theatrical influence to, you know, realizing his own ideas of like like, this is what movies are, right? And he defines that. And then from there, like, movies have never been the same. And that's why he's such a big deal, right? Because he, he understood what made film, film, right? Whereas people are like, well, film's just, 
recorded stage plays basically right but then he's like no like there's something else here with movies mm-hmm. you know he does that and yeah anyways and then that goes on through the 70s and the reason i bring up the 70s is because i feel like that was a really good time for film because um you know it wasn't like it wasn't the way the hollywood we think of now or the hollywood of spartacus right because it had just shifted right completely and so you had people like martin scorsese coming in and martin scorsese has a very particular um you know style with like taxi driver and such right and it's very dark and brooding mm-hmm. and so uh there was space for people to play with that and one of the one of my favorite movies of all time actually Sorry, yeah, if you need to go. No, no, no. No, I'm good. I just didn't want to yawn right into the mic. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you want me to shut up, you just No, no, I seriously. I I'm happy to listen to you as long as you want <laughs> to as ramble. long as you want to go. Like I uh, really don't mind. It's a dangerous thing. <laughs> yeah, the 70s, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called All the President's Men. Oh, excuse me. And it's written by William Goldman, I believe is his name. And he is uh He's kind of like one of the most iconic screenwriters. So he wrote that movie. And I think it was either directed or produced by Robert Redford, but it's starring him and uh, Dustin Hoffman as young men, <laughs> which is kind of, <laughs> it's fun to watch. Cause like yeah. the things I'd seen Dustin Hoffman in before, I was like, there's no way he can be in a good movie. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, except for Mr. McGoyne's Wonder and Boring does well. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> me and Harrison went to go watch that in the theater because they were replaying it. And it's about uh, Bob Woodward and the other guy, which is terrible, uh, who worked for the Washington Post, who were, you know, they were writing about the Watergate incident, and they were trying Mm. to uncover this big, huge scandal. Yeah. They didn't end up, you know, finding all the information and correct information they needed. But uh, it's just these two guys, and literally the entire movie is just like conversations between them and these other people, and they're just trying to gather information. It's just reporters doing their job. Right. right? But, like, it just doesn't seem like it should work, right? It just seems like it should be such a boring movie. Right. It's just two guys talking about writing articles. And there's the conspiracy aspect of it, right? Like, the scandal aspect. But, like, still, it's just these two guys writing about stuff right and just talking and having these conversations there's scenes with them eating big macs at mcdonald's talking about politics right like that's not interesting or at least you think so but william goldman being you know the writer he is was able to dramatize that really well because he understands the the plot you know devices really well and understands how to make a story meaningful and uh and then oh what's his name they called him the Prince of Darkness <laughs> because uh, he was a cinematographer. But his philosophies in capturing images were, I use shadow. I don't use light, right? And, that, and so they called him the Prince of Darkness because he'd always take really dark um, approaches to his cinematography. Interesting. So he has a really dramatic um, – I think he did a lot of work with Woody Allen, who's a controversial figure at this point, too. I think he was also kind of a terrible man, but um, – sexual abuse and such but uh yeah no but he he would use shadow instead of light and so he was a really good pick for this movie because it's a it's a movie that's shrouded in uncertainty and darkness and mystery right and so bringing him in in his style and the way that he captures movies he also did the godfather the first Mm. one at least but uh it really elevates the plot and those ideas of you know like what they're trying to do and so the writing with 
William Goldman, if I believe that's his name. Hopefully you know, people do some research and find that out for sure. But this other guy whose name escapes me, and his <laughs> name was like, his nickname was the Prince of Darkness. Like their two technical and thematic understandings of film come together to create this this beautiful movie that's just so good, so good. I recommend it. And like I'm on the edge of my seat this whole movie when I watch it because right. like, what's going to happen next? Well, I know what's going to happen. I know history, right? And I know about Bob Woodward and his pal, you know, but like <laughs> I'm still so involved in the plot because it was meaningful in the thematic sense, which was supported by the form. And to put this into historical context to understand it, it was pretty successful when it came out and well, critically well received. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out, I think, just over a year after Watergate, right? Like everyone already knew what happened. It was yeah. so, it was in the zeitgeist, right? And it finally, had, you know, had been done and everyone's finally overhearing about it in the news constantly. And then this guy comes out with this idea to make a movie about Watergate. And everyone's like, you're so dumb. Like about what literally just happened. Yeah, no one wants to see Watergate again, right? And then he's like, right. no, no, but like, think about this. And he talks about the reporters and everyone thought it was trash. Right. And then Robert Redford, you know, hears about it and he's like, whoa, that's a good one. Like, I can see the value in that story. And so it was one of those right moment, right time stories where he's like, let's make this. And so right. William Goldman writes it and this guy captures it on film and Robert Redford either directs or produces it. And it was received with critical praise. I don't know how it did in the box office, but I think it did fairly well. And it impacted audiences in a big way, like just a year or so later then the actual event it, it's dramatizing happened. Hmm. You know, and so it really shows me the power of like the, the impact you can have on an audience if you know the technical aspects and the thematic philosophical aspects really well because then you can incorporate them together and create a good movie. But yeah. Anyways, I don't know what the beginning of that question was. But... <laughs> no, I just, I, I, uh, I'm enjoying hearing about... Uh, your your philosophies and your ideas and your appreciation for film and kind of how it's all spawned because like i've known you for probably like eight years yeah, well yeah it's eight, and eight nine or ten yeah yeah and and so to see you know this like because i i feel like you know we hung out when i we first met like more so mm-hmm. and then like there was a long period where it's like we're both doing our own things, yeah. living our lives, and then you know now I come here and sit down and listen to you talk about all <laughs> these things that you've learned, and I always knew you were into film and stuff, but it just, it, I guess, it delights me to to see how you've like taken that appreciation for film and literature and philosophy and just like really like made it yours you know, and yeah. made it, made it your life. Um, because I, I feel like a lot of people don't have something that they, that they cherish mm. as like their thing. Well, yeah. this is what I do, you know? And, uh, it's obvious to me, like you must spend a lot of time like reading <laughs> and like, uh, too much time <laughs> and like going through this when you're like, yeah. So when I do a, you know, a critical analysis of this book, I read through it once and then write down my thoughts and then I read through it again and like pull it apart. I'm like, are you kidding? Like I'll read through a book and be like, cool shelf, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, and, uh, and you know, 
uh, depending on the book, maybe highlight things throughout and, mm-hmm. you know, passages I like and whatever. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's nice to hear, uh, but we are just about at two hours. Oh, so, goodness. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Sweet mercy. I'm like, I'm happy. I'm always happy to chat. Yeah. Um, and uh, fortunately, I just bought a bigger SD card. So, uh, this <laughs> I'm glad I could perfect. fill it entirely for yeah, you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but to kind of wrap it up, this is how I uh, finish every podcast. And after we finish recording, I'm going to ask you more questions because I'm cool to just like chat. Yeah, um, I love that. <laughs> especially like literature and philosophy and stuff. I do have some other specific things I want to ask you. Um, but to wrap up on the show, I always ask, uh, in in somebody's life, and this goes back to what we were talking about before we started recording about uh, our records and like what we leave behind mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. When you're, you know, however old you are when you die, when you're, you know, laying in bed, <laughs> looking back on your life and thinking about everything, everything that you've done and accomplished, um, what like what do you want to leave behind and what do you what do you want to look back on with the most joy and pride yeah that's a really good question and it's something i think about a lot because uh i'll try and keep this more concise than my previous answer to your you know few questions but uh you know wanting to pursue film and also having like a really firm moral foundation right in in the church and such and kind of having my own firm ideas on that um I realize like there has to be more of a purpose to making movies and it, you know, just being fun, but also just wanting to get rich and famous, you know, because that's definitely an aspect of it. You know, not a lot of people get to get to that point, but, you know, I have, I have professional aspirations, right? Like I want to make good money and also I want to reach the biggest audience, but that brings me to like what my, my purpose is in life. I think, you know, that I've thought about recently and it's, I want to, impact people in a positive way like I just want them to have really really meaningful emotional experiences when they watch something I've created or they read something that I've written and I just want to I just want people to be happy and have good experiences and I just yeah I don't know like maybe I've just thought about it more abstractly because it's hard for me they are hard for me to articulate but earlier on I talked about how me and Harrison have a real rush for the performance you know, like it's just, it just pumps our adrenaline. And I think it's because when you get up on a stage and we've played a few, you know, really minor rock shows, but when you get up on a stage and you nail a song and the audience is feeling it and they're just like, you know, like screaming your name or whatever it is, like you don't, for me and and Harrison and, you know, maybe for me in particular, I'll say, it's not because I'm the guy on the stage, I'm the center of attention. I'm the one that's being cool and making them have fun. It's because I'm I'm making them have fun, right? Like, it's not because I'm the one doing it. It's because they are having that experience, and I get to curate that for them. I get to bring that to them. Hmm. And so for me, when I approach making a movie, right, like, I, I think about the audience. I'm like, how can I impact the audience the most? Because I just want to orchestrate for them the perfect experience so that when they see the climax, the themes I'm trying to express, because it's about communication for me too, right? The things I'm trying to express hit them so hard emotionally that it brings a tear to their eye. Like I would just, my <laughs> one of my biggest goals right now is I want to make something. I want to make a movie that makes even just one person shed a single tear. And if that's all I got, like that would be so meaningful to me. Like that is just all I want. 
And, you know, and I'm realizing that that's, it's about relationships and, and communication for me. And, um, you know, like, like how I said, I kind of had that black sheep idea in my own head, which probably isn't true, <laughs> but you know, for, for my family, for instance, like, I feel like they can't understand me in my head, right? Cause my head's all over the place. And I think this conversation kind of <laughs> highlights that, <clears throat> highlights that, but, um, yeah, it's about making what I love known to the people and having them love it too in a meaningful way that like just affects them emotionally and, you know, this is cliche, but, you know, impacts their life to some degree. Because when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin, it made me cry and it made me think differently about the world. It made me appreciate things and it made me, you know, want to change. And I want, and I, and after that, I had such a love for Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I, I, I wrote in my journal, like, and when I die and I go to heaven, if I'm that good, like, I want to meet Harriet Beecher Stowe and just, like, thank her. Because, like, the experience she gave me is priceless. And I want to give people priceless experiences in the most selfless way possible. So, to be more succinct <laughs> or succinct, um, what I want, when I die and people look back on what I did, I want them to see a life full of excitement and love and just, like, a genuine desire for people to to love themselves and each other and and have meaningful experiences hmm. and even now i feel like that doesn't give justice what i actually want people to remember but that's that's the best i can articulate it at this point so well that's awesome <laughs> uh thanks for being on my wax museum aaron thanks for having me on your wax museum alex <laughs> and thank you for listening not just to this show but to the people around you the people in your life that's how we'll change the world, is by listening intently to the people around you. Mecco.